I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Ms. Anne-Marie O'Connor. Anne-Marie O'Connor has worked as a correspondent for UPI, Reuters, and the Cox newspaper chain in Mexico and Latin America, and was the border reporter at the Los Angeles Times, where she later covered police corruption, politics, and the arts. She currently contributes to the Washington Post from Mexico City and is the author of The Lady in Gold. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Anne-Marie O'Connor. Thank you all for coming. I expected sort of a polite turnout for a talk on Gustav Klimt's Stolen Women, but this is fantastic. It's great to be back in my adopted hometown and see some familiar faces out there. Uh, I'd like to thank Gregory Rodriguez, my host, and his staff for their lovely generosity of spirit. Uh, I'd like to thank Hava Volterra uh, for making my LA book tour possible and also Linda Resnick for making this Adele reproduction possible tonight. This is a story about art and justice. It's a story of a, a, of a painting of a Viennese intellectual woman, uh, Adele Blockbauer by Gustav Klimt. Uh, the painting was somehow launched into history by World War II. It was deeply rooted in the turn of the century Vienna around 1900, uh, what they now call the Age of Freud. But it became a beautiful enigma, uh, like the Mona Lisa, but with a dramatic backstory uh, and a not very well understood one until fairly recently. Uh, for me, this began as an L.A. story. I stumbled upon it by accident uh, as a reporter for the L.A. Times in turn of the century Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> I was reading the West Side Weekly in mid-2001. Uh, there was a column by Bob Shear, And I idly perused it. Uh, it had the story of a neighborhood woman in her 80s who had a painting stolen by the Nazis of her aunt. And these kinds of stories were very common in Los Angeles in those days uh, because of the emigrate population. Uh, People had been driven out, they had been persecuted, they came here, and their art had been stolen in Europe. In those days, people never got these paintings back. They got upset about it, they talked about it, but eventually they were very old and they just went away. Um, but this painting was not locked away in some castle or mansion or some obscure place. Uh, this painting was actually hanging in the uh, National Museum of Austria, the Belvedere, along with four other paintings that the family owned. Um, there was a tiny postage stamp image of the painting, and I perused it, and I looked at it. It was one of the most recognizable paintings in the world. I thought, that painting? Uh, it was one of Gustav Klimt's wealthy, decadent Viennese society women uh, that I remember from art history class. Uh, it didn't seem very interesting to me, but it was a very famous painting. So I called 411, and a woman answered, named Maria Altman. Yes, my love, please come over at once. That's how she spoke. Uh, she, when I got there, she was working, dressing a client. She had had a dress shop, but now she dressed people for a living, 
and she was dressing a woman in navy blue blazer and a silk scarf. And I thought, well, that was sort of odd, working at her age. But she had a great air of ceremony and uh, intrigue. And uh, when she was done, she uh, sat me down. And she said, now I am all yours, my darling. <laughs> and made me Viennese coffee with lots and lots of whipped cream. And she started to tell me this very long story about her Aunt Adele, uh, a woman of today living in the world of yesterday. According to Maria, the women painted by Klimt were not decadent, idle society women. These women were art collectors, intellectuals. They supported Freud, modern art, modernism. They were sort of lady existentialists of their day. Uh, Adele, uh, her aunt, may have even had a thing with Klimt. There were many romantic complications involving Alma Mahler, Hedy Lamarr, who in those days was someone Maria knew socially, Hedvig Kiesler, a protege of the theater impresario Max Reinhardt. There was Arthur Schnitzler, the Freud of Vienna theater, who one of his plays uh, on Viennese sex lives uh, became the Stanley Kubrick film Eyes Wide Shut. I just listened to this and I thought, wow, all these people were somehow involved in this? Um, but the case seemed really complicated, like one of those cases that really wouldn't go anywhere, but she seemed very ambitious about it. And I thought, well, what lawyer, what legal Houdini could possibly tackle this? And she said, Randy, Randy, I've known Randy since he was in diapers. Like she was talking about a, proudly of a, of a nephew's science project. So a few minutes later, I was in the office of Randy. Randall's office, Randall Schoenberg. He was very young. He looked like he had just graduated from college, although he would have been in his early 30s. He was very young looking. And he had this little tiny office with no staff. And he seemed to receive his own FedExes and do his own Xeroxing. And there were books piled everywhere on the desk, on, literally on the floor, columns of books. And they were on everything. They were on art history. They were on philosophy. They were on uh, legal theory. He just seemed to be some kind of a scholarly genius in this cubbyhole of an office. He had left a big law firm by then. And I listened to him talk. He spread out the books. He had pictures of all the people that he spread out, like the cast of a Russian novel. And he flung around the word Nazi a lot. This Nazi lawyer, this Nazi museum director. I thought, boy, could all of these people really have been Nazis? <laughs> um, so I called the LA Times Magazine, talked to the editor, Alice Short, and I said, look, um, this case is never going to go anywhere, but it's really a fantastic story. It's just an amazing story with amazing history, but also very local. And I did the story, and that was it, pretty much. Um, uh, but the case wouldn't go away. Uh, they, Randall kept winning his, his, legal, um, his legal steps. He kept being told by judges that the case could move ahead. So this lost cause started to become kind of talked about in the cocktail party circuit, and 
uh, around town. Well, at least it was interesting. It seemed to be going this far, uh, even if it wouldn't win completely, maybe. Um, and I found myself at a diplomat's party of consulates here in Los Angeles. And uh, the Austrian consulate walked in. He was new. And everybody started whispering. And my host whispered to me, he's here to save the gold. <laughs> and I must have looked at her blankly like, what? <laughs> the Nazi gold. <laughs> and she said it really loud. And, it was kind of felt self-conscious, but it had, be, it, it had become kind of a local drama. Um, but the actual story of this painting began in a very different, special time, when Vienna was an incubator of new ideas of psychology, medicine, and art. When Vienna was an explosion of creativity, and people were very eager, eager to see differently, hear differently, and feel differently. They were creating avant-garde music. They were trying to take part in the trend towards modernism and art that was already taking hold in Paris and other European capitals. Um, Adele, the model of this portrait, was very eager to join Vienna's bohemian world. Her very good friend, Alma Mahler, dated composers and had a romance with Gustav Klimt with a series of steamy encounters until her stepfather ran Klimt off before anything really serious took place, to which Maria Altman used to always say, that's what Alma said. <laughs> uh, but Vienna was very traditional, and Adele came from a very traditional family uh, who didn't want her unescorted in these types of scenarios. Um, but it was changing. Uh, the Jewish emancipation had brought the families of Freud, Mahler, and the patrons of Klimt's. Uh, Klimt's patrons were newcomers. These people were newcomers. Uh, they embraced new ideas, new art, like Klimt. Even the first family was changing in Austria, and it actually seemed to be kind of coming apart. Empress Elizabeth had married the emperor as a teenager, uh, not really interested in marriage, she liked nothing more than to ride her horses and tramp around in the woods with her brothers. But she was kind of pushed into this fabulous marriage with this very important man. But she hated the palace, and she became sort of a desperate housewife. Uh, she thought that the court was mean-spirited gossip, she wasn't interested in social climbing at all. So she just took off and started wandering the continent uh, like sort of a lady die. Uh, she was the most beautiful liberated woman in Europe and of course gossiped about quite a bit. But the common people, instead of reproaching her, condemning her, thinking she was terrible, loved her and they called her their Sisi and they really sympathized with her, which shows that some of the gender expectations were changing in those days. They could empathize with her desire to have a freer life. Um, the Emperor Franz Joseph was carrying on with a theater actress, Katharina Schrott, who was starring in a Schnitzler play on free love as the woman who was having the free love. The crown prince uh, committed suicide with his extramarital girlfriend, a teenager, at a royal country home. So the first family was Austria's premier dysfunctional family. <laughs> And they were setting a bad example for everyone. 
Now, in those days, there was an anti-Semitic backlash to all this effervescence. Uh, suddenly, uh, uh, after the Jewish emancipation, one, very quickly, uh, one out of 10 uh, Viennese residents, more or less, were Jewish citizens uh, in about 50 years. Um, this had sort of changed things somewhat, or at least uh, the mayor, uh, a vicious anti-Semite, Karl Luger, who kind of uh, elevated anti-Semitism to political propaganda. He's credited with being the first to do this. Um, so there was this backdrop of anti-Semitism and a backlash uh, accompanying these changes. Um, but in those days, it didn't seem quite as much concern, uh, although sometimes there was violence, it had kind of abated. And when they attacked a Jewish baron in the streets uh, in the 1860s, Emperor Franz Joseph immediately sent royal guards to go protect him and to go surround his house. So now there was a measure of protection against this kind of sentiment, although it still existed latently. So Adele was married very young uh, to a sugar baron who was twice her age. Uh, he was a good man, um, Ferdinand, and he loved her very much. He commissioned this portrait. She started to invite people to what she called in her letters our bohemian home, to her intellectual salon. Now, Vienna was a mecca for really interesting people in those days, but none of them were doing what they were supposed to be doing or what we remember them for. Felix Salton was famous as the writer of Bambi, but at this time he was writing a fictionalized erotic memoir of a teenage prostitute that was very explicit called The Story of Josephine Mutzenbacher, which is still available, actually. And he published it himself, I think. In his self-published special edition, pre-Bambi. <laughs> this was a scandal. Everyone wanted to know who published it, and then word got around. Um, Felix Salton was a newspaper writer. He was very handsome, uh, kind of a bon vivant. He defended Klimt from his critics, and he spent a lot of time writing little witty sayings and anecdotes that he put in the newspaper. Mark Twain, of course, turned up in Vienna in 1897. Uh, he was very depressed. He'd been going around Europe. His daughter died, and he had writer's block, and he was in a funk, and he couldn't write anything, and he kind of didn't know where to go or what to do, and he had his family in tow, and the belle of the family, Clara... Um, but he had a good friend in Vienna, uh, Theodor Herzl, the father of modern Zionism. They had been journalists together in Paris, and they had covered uh, the Dreyfus case in which a, a Jewish officer was unfairly accused of being a spy. And Mark Twain was an advocate of justice for Dreyfus, and he immediately started attending intellectual salons around town uh, to discuss the Dreyfus case. Um, Twain had so many Jewish friends in Vienna that the anti-Semitic press started to deride him as the Jew Mark Twain, der Juden Mark Twain. Only Jews had biblical names in Vienna. So anti-Semites thought that Mark Twain was a cover for a Jewish name, Samuel. Samuel Clemens was actually sort of a cover for his Real ethnic identity from Hannibal. Um, 
uh, his daughter, the belle of the family, Clara, started to date um, a Jewish composer, a talented piano composer, Osip Gabrilovich, uh, who married her, but not before having a series of steamy encounters with Alma Mahler, who found him bewitching and beguiling. Um, a, a, the, the social circle that Mark Twain socialized with was ve were very much friends of Adele and her family. Uh, he wrote, Mark Twain wrote a play with the father of a good friend of Adele, and the friend of Adele would also be painted by Klimt. Um, Sigmund Freud wrote quite a bit in his letters in those days about attending the lectures of our old friend Mark Twain. Now, there's no evidence they ever met, they ever met but they may have. But Freud skipped a meeting of the Psychoanalytical Society to attend Twain's talk on how he instructed Austrian royalty in watermelon-stealing techniques. <laughs> Freud cited Twain in many books, actually, quite a lot of books, but one of them was jokes in their relationship to the unconscious. <laughs> so there were all these interesting people there, but the most magnetic star in those days in Adele's orbit was Klimt. And she probably had met him as a teenager just because he was the focus of an obsession of Alma Mahler, who wrote endlessly in her diary before her marriage about how she yearned to surrender to Gustav Klimt and his kisses, but couldn't. Uh, or, as Maria said, that's what Alma said. Klimt <laughs> um, was a celebrity artist in those days. He grew up very, very poor. Uh, he, one year, he didn't have the right clothes, so he just didn't go to school because it was too embarrassing. Uh, he, but he and his brother were very talented artists, and they could draw things according to their likeness. They were excellent draftsmen. Um, so... Klimt somehow made his way in his early teens um, to the drawing school there, to the art school, and he was eventually accepted. And the teachers were so impressed by their talents and also their work ethic that they started to get them commissions doing all these decorative uh, paintings in spas, theaters, palaces all around the empire. They even, at one point, very early in their career, um, painted like a lush, nude heroine um, who was holding court with wild animals, you know, wild cats and animals, tigers and things, uh, in a palace for, uh, where Empress Elizabeth went to get away from it all. <laughs> and this was sort of seen as, a, as sort of a coquetry on the part of the artist to, to the beautiful Empress Elizabeth. So he had been known as a decorative artist, and now he was kind of coming into his own more as a modern artist. He was making these erotic drawings that everyone had seen, and they were scandalous and very explicit. I actually saw one the other day here in the studio of someone who has a collection. Uh, they were very explicit drawings. He was very, very handsome. Both brothers were very handsome. Klimt was known to be a tremendous seducer of women, and unlike his brother, who married his betrothed, Klimt was not a marrying man, so he had all these adventures around town that people loved to gossip about, because in Vienna, gossip was sort of currency. So Klimt was um, cutting quite a figure on the scene. 
He was making a lot of trouble in public in those days with a rebellion against the arts establishment. Klimt and his fellow artists were trying to make room for the modern art innovations that were taking place in Paris and other places. Now, in other European capitals, the city fathers were happy to house them, put them in museums, and accommodate these modernists, like Picasso and other talented people. But in Vienna, that was not happening at all. It was very hidebound, and the city fathers didn't really know what they thought of this art or whether they should hang it, so they didn't, as in public museums. As Herman Barr, the art critic, said, they want paintings that go with the furniture. And that's true. They were very oriented towards classical scenes of Romeo and Juliet and mythic figures and the kinds of things you would see on the streets of the Ringstrasse in the public monuments. So the artists decided to make their own exhibition hall, the Secession. It didn't exist yet, but they needed for this patrons and financial support. So they turned to this interesting new urban intelligentsia and started to talk to them about it. Uh, Klimt, in particular, found a lot of support among progressive women that he was painting in those days. One of his models, Margaret Wittgenstein, encouraged her industrialist father to become a patron. Um, he eventually donated so much money to the construction of the secession building that they put a plaque on the building with his name that wasn't taken down until the Hitler came. So the Wittgensteins were very supportive uh, because their daughters very much supported the, the, the secession artists. Um, Margaret's brother was Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, the future philosopher. The Wittgensteins were also the landlords of Adele's family, so this group all knew each other very well. Uh, and Ludwig Wittgenstein went to the same high school, briefly, as a boy named Adolf Hitler in Linz. So other Klimt models like Serena Later emerged as, as major patrons. She was a cousin of Joseph Pulitzer, and she bought up all of Klimt's most experimental works, um, which allowed him to progress as an artist, because artists who make these works need to share them and have patrons to buy them, and she was very receptive to them. All of these supportive women supported Klimt. Um, so they built the secession building with the support of this group, and now it was reality. And they held these kind of art openings there. They're a little bit like happenings. They had music and quite a scene going on, and it sounded great. Uh, so Klimt was shocking everyone in those days with, his, uh, with the experimental art that he now had a place to hang. He even turned a commission, his last commission, final commission from the state, the faculty paintings, which were supposed to hang in the ceilings of the uh, Vienna University. Um, he turned this commission into a very cutting edge. Even today, the image was, would be considered deviant. Modern art project. Uh, he was supposed to do philosophy. His painting of philosophy, they were probably expecting Plato in a toga or something like that. Instead, they got this very uncertain world in which it looked like there was no meaning to life at all and maybe not even a god. Then he did jurisprudence, which was these very mortal nude figures, uh, elderly ancient men with their genitals very well rendered, who seemed to, who seemed to have been uh, unfairly condemned. Justice didn't seem to be taking place at all. Medicine was no better. It had hygieia as a snake woman and 
oh, they didn't like this at all. Uh, the, there was a huge, the university said, there's just no way we're going to hang these paintings. The emperor was very upset about this. And the laterers, Serena Laterer and her family and a friend of hers bought these paintings so that he could be free from his commission. The next thing he did was the Beethoven frieze. This is kind of a precursor to the kiss. No one today would be shocked by this at all. It's actually quite pretty. Um, but so he painted the Beethoven frieze, which was about art, the power of art triumphing over the forces of darkness. And it was all about sort of the belief in those days that art could change the world, could somehow change the way people saw the world. Um, so when they had the opening, this was a typical happening. Gustav Mahler was there to conduct part of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Uh, and he was a big star, star conductor in those days, so for him to show up, that was big. Uh, Rodin came in from Paris to kind of groove along. And <laughs> interviews from that time have him noting that he was really impressed by the women surrounding Klimt. They were really fabulous. Um, the, so this, when they unveiled the painting, it had a naked man embracing a woman like an early kiss. This was firmly in Klimt's gold period now. And really, if you looked at it, you would think it was a decorative piece with a lot of influence from his early decorative art. But Klimt's critics freaked out. The press just went wild. They called it pornography. Uh, Karl Kraus was actually Klimt's biggest detractor. I have no idea why. But he criticized him at every turn, the polemicist Karl Kraus. So this was the last straw. Uh, Klimt said, OK, fine. I'm tired of trying to win popular recognition for my modernism. Or as he told a journalist, I want out. I want out. So where would he go? His new source of support would be these women, Adele's friends. Now, Adele and her friends were a little different. They wanted to live differently. They wanted to be more when their society wanted them to be less. One friend of Adele, a very good friend of hers, wanted to be a doctor. There were no female students at the University of Vienna in those days. So someone at the school snuck her into classes dressed as a man. And it took about 10 seconds for people to catch on. And there were so many boos and jeers that they had to call security. But the woman stuck it out, and she became Vienna's first female medical uh, graduate and first doctor. Another friend of Adele's, very good friend, was Berta Zuckerkandl, who interviewed Klimt, uh, was a pioneer female intellectual and journalist. Her husband was a very good friend of Freud. She was kind of a feminist defender of Klimt, uh, she credited him later with inventing the siren before movies invented the, the siren faces of women. Um, women tended to like his drawings. Nowadays, some art historians uh, wonder whether he sexualized women too much or uh, painted them uh, as vamps or you know something. But in those days, a lot of the women saw these drawings and paintings as a rare recognition of female sexuality in a society that sexualized women as prostitutes and in strange ways, but these paintings were about women and their own sexuality. So women in those days saw it a little bit differently. Um, these women, uh, friends of Adele's, also wanted to dress differently. They were very tired of corsets. Corsets made it really hard just to walk down the street. Um, 
Klimt's longtime one of his girlfriends, I guess is probably the best way to put it, um, female, female companion, was a fashion designer, Emily Flug. Uh, Emily Flug created these flowing gowns that allowed women to be freed from the uncomfortable clothes of the time. So this period was a little bit like the 60s in some ways. People wanted to change their lives. Uh, these women were at the forefront of this. And Klimt seemed to take them a little bit more seriously than other men of their time, uh, and they were very important to him. It's impossible to, to overstate their importance to his development as an artist. These women also ran Vienna's salon culture. Before television and media, the salons were a huge way of transmitting ideas. In those days, salons were Twitter. Cafes were Facebook, but it wasn't acceptable for women to go to cafes and table hop in public with all the men. But they could host salons in their homes and invite people over to as what Adela called our bohemian home. Um, now, of course, not everyone approved of women like this in those days. Women with unusual ambitions were shamed as degenerate by popular cultural critics, and in fact, in a famous bestseller at the turn of the century, uh, they were described as oversexed, undersexed, nuts and sluts. I think Rush Limbaugh might have had a word for them. <laughs> Even Gustav Mahler, a smart man, a genius, told Amo once she, they were married, she should just forget about composing. And she went along with it, even though she resented it mightily uh, and probably worked it out in her love life. Um, <laughs> so Klimt began to rely on, these, on the portraits of these women for his livelihood. They were as crucial to him as the coterie of supporters of Freud. And there was some overlap between the two groups. Uh, they really nurtured him. Now, having a Klimt portrait in those days was a little risque, because of his reputation, uh, but sensational, like a, having Warhol do your portrait today. Um, Adele, like other women in this group, uh, wanted to have her portrait done. Some of them already had. And so Ferdinand commissioned this portrait in 1903. Um, Klimt was very drawn to powerful female icons. He was a symbolist artist. And the symbolists actually turned the Mona Lisa painting into um, a very famous painting because they saw it as the essence of the eternal feminine. It was not as prominent a painting before the symbolists kind of attached themselves to it. But Klimt, like other symbolists, was drawn to powerful female icons. Uh, he had uh, painted Athena in armor, gold armor, you know. Uh, so... Klimt went to Ravenna before he did this painting to see the Byzantine mosaics. He, was, he writes about how he was astounded by their light, their color. They really are beautiful mosaics. Um, they, uh, art historians believe he got his inspiration from the mosaic of Empress Theodora. Now, she was a very unusual woman for her time. I guess that was the seventh century. Um, she was a single mother and an actress who the emperor, Justinian, had married against his family's will. Her detractors, and there were many, mostly Procopius uh, at that time, her detractors wrote her history, uh, called her a brazen hussy, 
and complained that she shared power with her husband and even did some military commanding. But she's credited with adding protections for women into law, um, Justinian law, which is a foundation of Western law. So she is the fallen icon who was said to inspire the portrait of Adele. Um, Klimt and Adele spent three years together. He made dozens and dozens of drawings for this. Uh, no one really knows exactly what happened in those three years, although it seemed like kind of a long time. And after that, he did another portrait that uh, I think he finished in 1912. Um, but a very erotic drawing of a woman who looked like Adele later made people wonder. What emerged was certainly a lifelong friendship. The 1907 portrait made Adele a sensation. A critic called her an idol in a golden shrine. Klimt used real gold leaf. The portrait became a symbol of the empire. Um, when he was painting Adele, he also created some of his, most other, his other most beautiful and sensual paintings of his gold period. The portrait of Denai, the mythical goddess locked in a tower. The kiss, which also looked like Adele, um, as people would later note. Now, a failed artist named Adolf Hitler lived in Vienna then. He was rejected by the Art Academy. He hated the degenerate modern art. Uh, he lived in a homeless shelter financed by Jewish donors. A kindly Jewish framer got his client to buy Hitler's mediocre paintings. But Hitler became a vicious anti-Semite in Vienna anyway. Now, in the 20s and 30s, Vienna was still a happening place. Uh, Billy Wilder, the Los Angeles film director, was a Viennese journalist who tried to interview Freud. Freud blew him off because he thought that he came to ridicule him. He had been ridiculed a lot in the press. Uh, Ferdinand, Adele's widower, became a hero. He put on a show for a degenerate artist, uh, with, who, Oskar Kokoschka, who was declared a degenerate by the Nazis in 1937. Uh, Ferdinand extended the show in defiance of the Nazis, and now Ferdinand really embraced the art that his wife had loved. Um, when, when Hitler arrived, uh, a Nazi lawyer took control of Ferdinand's possessions and handed out his Klimt paintings to museums, um, like the National Art Gallery known as the Belvedere. Some paintings went to the Führer Museum of Hitler. This was not a probate, and Ferdinand was not dead. So this was not in deference to a, to a will that Adele had made saying, can you please donate my Klimt's to the uh, Belvedere uh, after your death. Uh, Ferdinand was her heir, and these paintings were his property, and he did not donate them. Now, the painting continued to be a symbol of Austria, even under Nazi rule. It was, it was displayed in a book in 1942. Adele was now a racial enemy, so the book called her Dame in Gold, the Lady in Gold. Balder von Schirach, the Nazi governor of Vienna, sponsored Klimt's biggest show ever in 1943, and Adele's portrait appeared with a descriptive title, Portrait of a Lady with a Gold Background. These Jewish models, once so preoccupied with their identities, were now anonymous. Uh, Adele was an anonymous symbol of an elegant Viennese woman, but for Nazi art shows. Um, meanwhile, during, while all these shows were going on, her Adele's niece, uh, Luisa, was struggling to survive in Yugoslavia with her family. And her other niece, Maria, fled. Um, after the war, Allied forces pulled art out of salt mines and castles. 20% of the art in Europe had been stolen. It was piled in depots. 
Ferdinand didn't want to give the portraits of Adele or anything else to Austria. He tried to get his glimpse back. He didn't want to donate them. He died in 1945. He never got them back or anything back. His house, anything. His company, he was fleeced. Then for a long time, what happened in Austria stayed in Austria. Adele's portrait and the other stolen glimpse paintings remain hanging in the Belvedere. Heirs were told the art was donated. Heirs to the Rothschild collection, heirs to all the collections were told that their family had donated these paintings, when in fact, they had been forced to sign over some of their possessions in exchange for getting some of their other possessions or getting out with their lives. Museum correspondence that told a contradictory story was locked away. A man named Kurt Waldheim ran for president. He said he spent the years at university. People accepted this, and then people began to examine the past. Hubertus Chernin, a muckraking journalist, heard that Kurt Waldheim had joined a Nazi organization and fought in the German army. He published his findings in the Austrian press, and it was shocking. Hubertus also heard rumors about art in the Belvedere. He looked into a Klimt portrait of a woman named Adele Bloch-Bauer. He found the portrait had been pulled down from Ferdinand's wall and delivered to the Belvedere in 1941 with a letter saying, Heil Hitler. It turned out many paintings in the Belvedere, including the Rothschilds, weren't legally acquired. To Hubertus, Adele became a metaphor for the stolen and deliberately concealed history of Austria. These revelations prompted Austria to pass an art restitution law in 1998 to return art that had been stolen from state museums. But they failed to do this. And in a 2000 show called Klimt's Women, they hung all of these disputed paintings, uh, including the portrait of Adele and the other portrait uh, that Klimt painted next, prompting a Vienna journalist to compare Austria to a gangster's mall parading around after a bloody robbery with jewelry she insists the victim gave her as a, president, as a present. By then, Marie Altman was trying to get the family's glimpse back. At the end of her life, she had found a huge sense of purpose in this. It took Randall eight long years and an unbelievable amount of work and creativity. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled in his favor on a jurisdiction issue in 2004, uh, which prompted the Austrians to offer to let the case be decided in Vienna. Um, the panel in Vienna found that the five Klimt paintings owned by the Bauers, this one of them, should be returned to their heirs. Uh, the Austrians had a chance to buy some of the paintings early on, and they didn't do it. Uh, they said it would be too expensive. So the paintings left Austria. Ron Lauder bought this portrait for $135 million from the Neue Gallery and the other four were sold at auction and vanished. Now, for me, this saga wasn't just a restitution of a painting. It was a restitution of history. By the end of this, Adele was no longer a beautiful enigma, a lady in gold. The restitution had resurrected her and the other Klimt's women as handmaidens of Vienna modernism. Each Klimt portrait in Vienna now had a story, and each story raised moral questions. Regardless of whether people believe the Blackbar Klimt should be returned, it was impossible for the Viennese who loved their art to look at these paintings and other paintings the same way again. Austrian museums have returned a dozen Klimt paintings in the past decade. Uh, it's lamentable these works are no longer in public view, uh, but art is sold every night in New York auction houses that would be better off in public display. And the alternative, which is stolen property on museum walls, had become much less acceptable. Uh, Vienna has proclaimed this the year of Gustav Klimt and issued a golden coin to commemorate the 150th anniversary of Klimt's birthday. 
On one side is the face of Klimt, on the other the face of Adele. Adele Blockbauer is still a symbol of Austria, which I find a very interesting decision. But now her true story is known, and it ain't the sound of music. Uh, <laughs> I started this book in 2006. I felt like I had to. The subjects were very old, but still in very good shape. This piece of history was too important. I had never heard the stories of these interesting women who supported Klimt and made him possible as an artist. Um, nothing really seemed more important than this. Uh, I took a leave from the LA Times and never really went back. So now that the stories of the women Klimt painted into history are finally being told, maybe it will truly be the year of Gustav Klimt. What happened to the picture? Well, where is it now? This painting is at the Neue Gallery in New York, which is a museum that celebrates the uh, culture in Vienna that was forced to flee uh, after the arrival of Hitler. Uh, what happened to the Rothschild paintings that were there that you mentioned? And also, are there still stolen, is there still stolen art hanging in the museum, or has it been returned? I'm aware of a couple disputed Klimt paintings. The Rothschild collection was one of the first big collections to be returned, I think in 1999. It was an enormous collection and it was a terrible case where letters were locked away where the Rothschilds had been trying to get the paintings back after the war. They passed away, their heirs didn't know about this and when their heirs came to ask, they were told that these were donations. They were in fact not donations, they were blatant thefts some of, them in ex some of them given in exchange for allowing Rothschilds to leave with their lives. How and when did Adele die? Adele died in 1925. Uh, she was 43. She died very suddenly. She collapsed of meningitis. That was the probable cause they gave it. I looked into some of the family correspondence, and there was actually a debate between the doctors about brain fever or what exactly this was but it was some kind of neurological collapse that was ascribed to meningitis, uh, which was a common illness in those days. I just had a question. You mentioned Freud a lot and um, their collaboration with Clint. Um, what do you think about the changing views about sexuality with regards to Freud and the changing views of sexuality and, and Clint and how those two might intertwine with his paintings, um, being of some of a sexual nature and, and, and if there's any meeting in between those two? Well, you know, I, I was raised with, um, in the family with sort of a prejudice against Freud. He was kind of seen as an anti-feminist proponent of hysteria and uh, other kind of misogynistic theories. But for the times, he was actually interesting. I mean, if you, uh, if you look at Klimt's drawings, you can tell that he certainly didn't uh, subscribe to Freud's theories of orgasm. So I don't know. I, you know, I don't even know if they ever met, but they certainly would have been influenced each other in those days. I used to hear rumors that the Klimt paintings were, um, that the surface was painted over full nudes. Is there any truth to that, or do you know anything about that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, there are rumors that um, Klimt first painted a woman nude and then painted clothes over her. Uh, that's interesting. You know, people used to say that in his time. Uh, you know, it was part of his sort of sexual legend. But it was also mentioned in a Schnitzler play. There's a play about a character that 
that is definitely Clempton. Another one that Aurelia, a word that means golden, uh, that sounds a little bit like Adele, and it's about this Klimt character trying to seduce this portrait model. And at one point in the play, Schnitzler has one of the town gossips saying, oh, well, you know what they say. They say that he paints two paintings. First he paints them naked, and then he paints them clothed. So certainly that was making the rounds. Your lecture is incredible. There's so many things going on. I'm dazzled by all the names and the activities and the people. Um, could you kind of elaborate a little bit more on that self-published book about the sex life of the prostitute. I'm trying to think how that all tied in with everything. No, I was just trying to talk about some of these interesting personalities who we may know, like Felix Salton and Billy Wilder, and sort of how maybe they had other lives in Vienna in those days, because Vienna was kind of a happening place, and maybe they had other guises. Um, that was, his question was, uh, why was it relevant to mention that Felix Salton had written this erotic uh, novel? Um, I just thought it was interesting, I guess is the best answer. Do you, now that some of these uh, cases of restitution have come to the fore, uh, is it going to take somebody like a Randy Schoenberg or a, the passion of Maria Altman to make the cases succeed? Or, or does it, do you think that institutions that have some of these paintings will be more forthcoming and cooperative? Well, the truth is, since this case began, um, a dozen paintings have been returned from Austria. These are major works by Klimt. They were hanging in museums. Uh, the, the latest one was sold uh, last fall for a huge amount of money. I forget, 40 million something. It was a landscape. It was just lovely. But Austria is giving them up now and much more quickly than before as a result of this because oh, these cases focus a lot of attention on these paintings as kind of symbols of unaddressed wrongs of Austria's Nazi past. And the world has a perception that Austria was a little slow in correcting uh, some of these things, and these paintings have become symbols of that. So I would say it's actually being sped up quite a bit. And if there's a good case, it's easier now. I know a few that are still in the pipeline, but I think even they'll win eventually. Can you talk a little about some of the symbols in the painting that look like eyes and little squares and curlicues? Because I'm not familiar with those. Uh, sure. Um, the eyes are, are Egyptian eyes of... He, uh, the question is, what are some of the symbols in the painting? The eyes are um, some of the are Egyptian eyes of Horus, which are symbols of protection and power. And then the Almond-shaped designs uh, are viewed as code for female sex. <laughs> Is that the last question? <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. <laughs>